0: Thank you. It's Thursday, May 14th, 2020. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a limited-run podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, The Last Man. How did Mary Shelley's other famous novel shape our understanding of pandemics? We talked to Shelley scholar and author Eileen Hunt Botting, and then appealing to Los Angeles leaders to strengthen the literary community. I'm Stephen Fee, all that coming up on The Pen Pod. Eileen Hunt-Botting is a political theorist who teaches at Notre Dame. She's also a scholar of literature, and in particular, Mary Shelley and her pandemic novel, The Last Man. To talk more about how we might read that book in the context of our current pandemic, Eileen Hunt-Botting joins me now. Hi, Eileen.
1: Hi, how you doing? Thank you so much for having me.
0: Good. No, it's a pleasure. So so for those who don't know the story of Mary Shelley's Last Man, give us, give us a quick overview.
1: Well, it's... the in my view, the first major pandemic novel of the modern era. Uh, I think we could quibble about that from various literary perspectives. Obviously, there are other great pandemic writers before Mary Shelley, like Boccaccio and Defoe, for example. But I think what Mary Shelley did distinctively in her great pandemic novel, The Last Man, is to give us a post-apocalyptic vision of the near destruction of humanity through a global plague. And the novel begins, interestingly, as a kind of modern myth. It tells the story of a shepherd boy, Lionel Verney, who is effectively Mary Shelley's literary avatar in the tale. And Verney begins uh, life uh, in the country, in England. uh, And eventually grows up to marry into the royal family and to end up at Windsor Castle of all places. Uh, and so the the novel has a bit of a, of a of a historical fantasy feel to it, although it's also set in the at the end of the 21st century. So it has a bit of a futuristic political science fiction feel as well. Um, and its political science fiction elements become clear um, as the story progresses. Because as Verney becomes more involved in the governance of England um, uh, from within the royal family, uh, they are presented with s- some stark choices. How are they going to deal with this plague that has begun um, during a war in Constantinople and is sweeping west towards England? Uh, and so uh, as the story um, uh progresses, we see this slow burn of the virus around the world. Uh, The first half of the novel is a bit slow, but it's also a bit like a global plague in that it comes on slowly and stealthily and creeps up on us. Uh, And before we know it, we're overwhelmed. Uh, And so it's the last half of the novel that I think we get this wonderful kind of crescendo where um, we see all of the dangerous consequences of people's collective failure to plan ahead. So you
0: you just mentioned you've called this book the first major post-apocalyptic novel. And I wonder what you what you specifically mean by that.
1: Thanks. That's a great question. What I mean is not that Mary Shelley was the first major writer to uh, discuss a, uh, a global calamity like a pandemic. Um, There are other great examples of pandemic literature or epidemic literature before her, Boccaccio and Defoe come to mind, of course. What Mary Shelley did distinctively was to use the modern genre of the novel um, to explore the existential threat of the destruction of humanity through a pandemic. Uh, And what she did so brilliantly was to conceive the story as one of the last man, the last human left on earth after a global plague. And I think this was her true narrative brilliance as a writer uh, to put to put us, the readers, into that existential position of Lionel Verney, um, the shepherd boy uh, from rural England who has been brought into the higher ranks of English political society, and to identify with him as he sees everyone else fall down around him, kings and uh, prime ministers and uh, Republican leaders. Uh, Everyone falls down, uh, leaving him alone in Rome at the end of the novel. Uh, And I think quite poignantly, she has Bernie ascend to the top of St. Peter's Basilica to think about what he should do next. And this is where the post-apocalyptic part of her story comes in, because Vernie doesn't give up. Bernie doesn't lose hope. Vernie uh, thinks about what to do next, what comes after apocalypse. And so I think that's the real genius of Mary Shelley's imaginative vision is to not only use um, pandemic literature to explore these existential questions, but to, to push us to the question of what comes next after a massive disaster hits the human species
0: so i guess easy next question then is you know how do you think people who might decide to pick up this book now might interpret it amid the coronavirus that we're experiencing
1: there's so many ways in which this novel relates i i really hope that people will take the time to to read the novel either in one of the scholarly editions or on one of the free editions online um uh, it's to me Uh, extremely prescient when it comes to thinking about how time passes during a pandemic, especially as we live under lockdown and quarantine. The strange upending of conventional experiences of time um, is captured well by Mary Shelley. Uh, I also think that she was quite prescient to think about the ways in which governments uh, tend to fail colossally when it comes to prepping for and dealing with the aftermath of a pandemic. Uh, in her novel, uh, which has been read traditionally as a, as a political novel, um, uh, she shows how virtually every known political system and every kind of utopian political idea fails in the face of the, of the global plague uh, to survive it. Um, leaving only Lionel in the end to think about what comes next. And I think what what, what she does perhaps most presciently is to have Lionel um, embody a new cosmopolitan way of approaching politics after a global plague. And this may be the part that resonates most with us today as we think about what do we do next? I mean, how do we face this kind of post-apocalyptic situation that we found ourselves in after the coronavirus? And, and what Lionel decides to do is not just to give up, not just to preserve his own life. Um, uh, he decides to care about the whole world. He decides to think of himself as a citizen of the the whole earth, even. Um, he adopts a, a mutt, um, as many people are doing right now, I read in the papers. Um, uh, pet ownership is right. quite quite important. Uh, for for human beings, as we learn how to be more solidaristic with the whole environment under a pandemic, um, and he he actually turns to books. Um, uh, you know, he uh, he he decides to uh, do some reading as he goes out in search of other humans. He speculates there must be someone out there who survived this just like me. Um, in fact, he thinks that there must be more than one person who survived. Uh, he thinks that there might be a new Adam and Eve out there somewhere who are already having children um, and repopulating the earth. Uh, and, um, but as he embarks on this sea journey in search of other survivors, he brings his copies of Homer and Shakespeare. And, and why does he do that? Well, um, in some ways, they are symbols of, of hope as well because in these, in these writings and these imaginative writings that, that often have pro, um, processed great political tragedies, you know, like war um, in the past, uh, it's through reading and engaging with these imaginative works that, that he finds the kind of spiritual nourishment he needs to believe that there's more to come and that humanity will find a way out of, out of the plague.
0: Yeah, I mean, eerily positive spin uh, and message that we can take away from this book. Uh, What was what was going on in in Mary Shelley's life when she wrote this?
1: Well, I think that's the the really interesting story behind The Last Man. And that's why it's it it, it not only has been read traditionally as a political novel. It's also been traditionally read as a roman clef. And that's because virtually all of the characters in the novel are are imaginative stand-ins or or avatars for the people she loved and lost in her in her life um uh, as 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 many of the uh listeners will know Mary Shelley survived a lot of tragedy in her life um you know uh, it's uh, it's been noted since the earliest feminist literary criticism on on Frankenstein that that Mary Shelley um, lost uh, her firstborn daughter, Clara um, uh, who was born premature, two months premature and died two weeks later and and Mary Shelley lost that baby a, a little over a year before she wrote Frankenstein and, and we know that when she was when she was uh, talking about her idea for the for the story of Frankenstein. Uh, on the shores of Lake Geneva in uh, June of 1816, she was talking to um, Percy um, Shelley uh, and uh, Lord Byron uh, and Polidori about these nightmares she was having about the loss of that baby. So we know that she was haunted by that loss and that animated the story at the heart of Frankenstein which is this desperate desire to bring dead flesh back to life, right? Uh, And so, a, a similar horror is at the core of *The Last Man*, and it's also grounded in her personal experience of a chain of inexplicable tragedies. So, after she publishes *Frankenstein*, you know she, she she's only twenty years old. She and Percy, um, who's now her husband, move to Italy. And you think, oh, okay, happy ever, happily ever after, right? You know, they're gonna they're gonna move, right, <laughs> right, okay. Not so much. She. Um, loses two of her babies within eighteen months of moving to Italy. Two of her toddlers die of malaria or fever, um, which is quite interesting. Thinking about how she goes on to write the first great post-apocalyptic pandemic novel of the modern era, I mean, she had personal experience with with, with these kind of invisible, the invisible villain of plague, right? That kind of kind of strikes um, uh, when you least expect it, taking away the people you love the most. Um, striking into your very home. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, taking those babies out of the crib. So she had direct experience with plague, um, and uh, and and the losses that come with plague, and and that that animated, I think, um, uh, her decision to write the novel. But I think ultimately the real reason she wrote the novel um, was. Uh, in response to the death of Percy, um, who drowned off the coast of Tuscany in July of 1822, that plunged her into a near catatonic depression. She she didn't write in her journal for about three months, but when she picked up her pen again, she called the next volume of her journal, The Journal of Sorrow. And I have written a piece coming out in the Times Literary Supplement this Friday on how writing that journal of sorrow, that record that 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 private and meticulous re- record of, of personal suffering and pain after losing Percy and her children ultimately shaped her vision of herself as the last woman of the second generation of english romanticism and and that's why, in the last man, she is Lionel verney right um she is the last man right. Um, the last man left standing from that that generation of, of creative rebel artists, you know, who completely reworked the meaning of literature um, in their very short lives.
0: Well, Eileen uh, Hunt-Bodding teaches at Notre Dame. Her forthcoming book is Artificial Life After Frankenstein. Thank you so, so much.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate the support of Penn.
0: Across the country, city councils are weighing how best to support their cities amid the pandemic. And in particular, there's been welcome momentum on supporting arts and culture. This week, we wrote a letter to the Los Angeles City Council urging them to include writers and literary organizations in any relief package they might put together for cultural organizations. As we did last week in New York City, we urged the Council to also consider funding a public narrative project, commissioning and paying writers to document the effects of the pandemic on the lives of people in the city. Read more about that effort and our similar efforts nationwide on our website, pen.org. <laughs> And that's our episode for Thursday, May 14th, 2020. Join us tomorrow for the Pen Pod. We'll have an interview with author Rebecca Mackay and a tough questions segment with Pen America's own Suzanne Nossel. You can listen to all our episodes at Penn.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Sign up on our website for our daily DARE newsletter. That's where we track major stories about literature, free expression, and the news of the world. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you tomorrow.